0: So today we're going to take a diversion away from the early chapters of Acts and look instead at our church text, as Claire said in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, we're going to look at the whole of Ephesians 2, um, I hope. And um, I'm just slightly worried, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Um, and not the whole of Ephesians 2, sorry, the whole first ten verses, don't panic too much. Um, and eventually, hopefully, we'll land in prayer week. And think a little bit about that. And if you're reading along in the reading plan, uh, you will have read almost uh, read about the almost three years that Paul spent at Ephesus, and Paul wrote this letter to them around um, seven years later. So if you could open it up, I think it's page 1174. Uh, that would be great. And Paul's getting really excited here. In the original Greek, uh, so I'm told, um, he's managed to get from verse 3 of Ephesians 1 all the way to the start of chapter 2 with just two sentences. So he's kind of on a bit of a roll. Um, He's obviously excited. And this whole passage that we're going to look at, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, is a single third sentence. So again, he's sort of racing through, getting excited about it. And it's in kind of three sections, which is what we're going to look at. Um, First of all, Paul talks about what we were before we became Christians, before we knew Christ. Then he talks a little bit about what happened, what he did, what God did when when, uh, we became Christians. What we're called to do, which is our church text, being God's workmanship created for good works. And then at the end, we're going to add a a fourth thing, hopefully, uh, about what is God's work in this and what are we called to do as part of that process. So, here we go. No, um, oh, and already we 're having some fun okay so i 'm just going to carry on um, The first thing is that before we became Christians in the first five verses, it really kind of makes pretty depressing reading um, i don 't know if you picked that up when, when beryl was reading not i 'm suggesting that beryl 's reading was depressing, but the passage itself talks about some fairly bad things. Um, which were the state that we were in before we came to know Jesus. First of all, Paul says that we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. He says in verse 2, as for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live. And again in verse 5, he says that too. And he doesn't mean physically dead, of course. Uh, He means spiritually dead. He means cut off from God completely. And if there's one characteristic of a dead person, it is that they're kind of, not going anywhere. Uh, we can appeal as much as we like. We can plead, prod, cajole as much as we like. They're not going to respond. And spiritually, we have to understand that that was, before we became Christians, that was our state. We were unable, in and of ourselves, to respond to any of the pleadings of, of, of the Bible or, or, or the pleadings that we might hear from the um, from the pulpit. Paul also says that we were living or, or walking in our sins as slaves he's pretty graphic, he says you used to live this way when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its oh it's come back again, here we go following its desires and its thoughts, there we are so we might have been trying to live a good life, even doing what we thought were the good works in our church text. But Paul says we were actually following the devil. We didn't have a choice. We were slaves. The third thing he says is that we were condemned. And, and we have this phrase, he says, all of us were by nature objects of wrath. Now, we don't like to think about wrath. Um, we might not understand even what it means always. And another word we might want to use is anger. But God's not an angry parent who's lost his heavenly temper. Um, that's absolutely not the case. So what is wrath? Uh, and there's a good definition here, I think, which is that God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. Now, we, we don't really like to think about that. We like to talk, and rightly we should, and we will in a minute, talk about the love of God. But we have to understand that God hates the sin that's in our lives. And, you know, that's not a bad thing. Think of the alternative. Wayne Grudem says this, it's helpful to ask what God would be like if we were a God that didn't hate sin. He would be a God who either delighted in sin or at least wasn't particularly bothered about it. Such a God would not be worthy of our worship. And, in fact, it's a virtue to hate evil and sin, and we know this don't we? Whenever we're campaigning against injustices, stop the traffic, um, um, make poverty history, we are hating sin, we're fighting against it, and we're imitating God in that. So don't think of God's wrath as being a bad thing, just think of what the alternative would be. So that's what we were. So Paul has explained that we were dead, slaves living in our sins, condemned by God. And I think understanding this is so important because it explains why the quick fixes that we think perhaps that as a society we can put in place or governments think that they can put in place to uh, restore society, it explains why they don't work. And, and John Stott says this, it's a failure to recognize the gravity, the seriousness of this human condition of death and sin and slavery and condemnation which explains people's naive faith in superficial remedies. Neither education nor legislation can rescue human beings from spiritual death, captivity, or condemnation. And and we know that, don't we? Uh, We know that however much legislation and education we we have, and we have a lot of it, It doesn't save and hasn't saved our society from greed, from the horrors of what people do to their children, from the things that people do that that we heard about in, in, in Israel and in Gaza, from the countless other things that we see in the headlines. We need a much greater remedy for our society, and we also need a greater remedy for each one of us too, for our friends and our family. And some of us know that all too well from our own personal experience, we know just how much we need Jesus, just how lost we are without him. And, you know, the great social reformers knew this too. Uh, For those of you who've read or heard about Wilberforce, um, he spent a lot of time trying to campaign for the abolition, first of the slave trade and then of slavery itself, but he spent probably a lot more time uh, praying that Christ, that uh, God will become central to the society uh, of, of his day. And he understood that it wasn't enough just to reform the structures of society, that people needed that reformation too. So it's pretty depressing, as I said. Um, And what does this mean for us? Well, the first thing is that if we've never really understood this before, then in a minute we're going to come to some really good news. Paul doesn't explain all this to leave us where we were, but to encourage us to come to the Lord Jesus, who is uniquely qualified to deal with all of these things, and we're going to see that exactly in a second. And if we are Christians, we need to understand it, not to get depressed, but to drive us to worship God even more, because we understand just exactly what he has done, but even more, to tell our friends and our families and our work colleagues how much they need Jesus too. And, you know, I I don't know about you, but I'm tempted to think that sometimes maybe our friends or our family who, who don't know the Lord Jesus, they look superficially on the outside like they can do very well without the gospel. And what Paul explains here is, however, it may look like that on the outside, they can't. They're in this condition, as were all of we, Paul says. So the picture's pretty bleak. Let's move on before we get too depressed. What did God do? Well, we have this verse here in uh, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but God, and it starts with those wonderful two words. Um, You don't see it quite so well in, in, in the version that you're looking at there, but in the English Standard Version it says, but God... Uh, and that reflects what the Greek says too, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we are dead in transgressions and sins, trespasses, he made us alive. This but God, these wonderful two little words, just turn the whole thing around. And the first thing that God did is that he made us alive. We were dead, so God made us alive. And back in chapter 1, Paul told the Ephesians that the power working in us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It took that power to save and transform us and rescue us from that position that we were in. And just as uh, Jesus was raised from the dead, so God makes us alive. And at the moment, what we see is a spiritual making alive. It's what Jesus said to Nicodemus about us being born again. But one day, when Jesus comes again, we'll be made physically alive with those new resurrection bodies that the Bible talks about too. The second thing, we've already talked about this actually right at the um, beginning of the service, is that God brought us into a new kingdom. We said that we were slaves in Satan's kingdom, but God brought us from being slaves to being, it says, seated as rulers, for he has rescued us, it says elsewhere, from the dominion of darkness, and thank you Simon for saying that at the beginning, I think you did, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves so we're actually rulers with Christ in a new kingdom, not slaves anymore. And then the third thing is that we're not condemned anymore. Remember that horrible phrase, we were by nature objects of wrath. But now God shows his kindness to us in Jesus. And, and basically what this means is that when God looks at us, and you know this, but it's worth repeating, that he sees the righteousness of Jesus. When God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin, he sees what Jesus has done. And amazingly, that wrath, that anger, that right anger that, Jesus, uh, that, that God had against sin, that was all by, borne by Jesus on the cross. And we need to be very clear about that because we need to understand just how great was what Jesus did for us on that cross. And if we belittle the seriousness of our sin, then we are also belittling what Jesus did for us. And we can't really understand, or at least I can't fully understand, what Jesus did for us there, but we know from Romans 8 that there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. So those three things that were a problem, being dead, being slaves, being under God's condemnation, they have all been sorted out and fully satisfied, if you like, by what Jesus did, and that's what we mean by grace. So we've been um, singing quite a lot about grace, and that's not an accident because I chose the songs, and, um, (laughs) sorry, sorry, Simon, and um, Paul talks about grace quite a lot in this passage, and you might have heard the word before and not been entirely sure what it meant, and it's kind of a bit of Christian jargon, and, and there's a lot of Christian jargon around that we don't try to use too much. But you know, all walks of life have jargon, don't they? We talk about RAM and CPU and megabytes and uh, browsers, and we kind of know what they mean, um, or at least if we need to know what they mean, we know what they mean, so they don't worry us. And Christian jargon is kind of the same. It's fine, it's very useful once you know what it means. So let's just take a quick diversion and, and, and look at this word grace. Um, And we could do worse than look at the words of some of the uh, songs that we've been singing, or in this case, actually not singing, but um, uh, the words of the songs that we do know. And, you know, it's really important that the songs that we sing and the songs that we choose um, reflect the truth of Scripture, and that's what I know Simon and, and I and others who choose songs really try to make sure, because it's our songs that teach us about who God is, and it's our songs that um, teach us our theology, because at the end of today, there's a fair chance you might go out singing, it's grace, it's nothing I can do, Um, that song that we sang during the offering, it's pretty unlikely that you'll go out reciting the sermon. Um, Even I am not going to go out reciting the sermon. (laughs) So we remember the songs, and um, it's great that we can choose songs that reflect the truth of the gospel. So, wonderful grace that gives what I don't deserve, pays me what Christ has earned on the cross, then lets me go free. That's grace. When I was lost, you came and rescued me. Oh Lord, such grace to qualify me as your own, to make us accepted in the Lord Jesus. That's grace. How beautiful the grace that gives to us all that we don't deserve, Because we were dead, we were slaves, we were condemned. All that we cannot earn but is a gift of love, the love of God as as Paul says in this passage. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich, rich in mercy made us alive. It's by grace you've been saved. What about this one? Lord, I'm grateful, amazed at what you've done. My finest efforts are filthy rags. That's a bit extreme, isn't it? No, it's straight from Isaiah. But I'm made righteous by trusting in the Son. I have, this is clever, God's riches at Christ's expense. So if you're trying to remember what grace means, there you go. Nice little acronym which Stuart Townend had obviously heard of beforehand. That's grace. Okay, so... What does this mean for us? It's all very well to look at the Bible and say, this is what it's saying, this is what it's saying. Well, what does it mean for us? Well, two, two things, I think, um, at this stage. First of all, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus and you're not a Christian, then this is the most brilliant news in the whole world because Jesus is completely the answer to the spiritual death, to the slavery, to the condemnation and guilt. And and I would really urge you to trust him today for that. And and if some of this has been speaking to you, then come and find Simon or Claire or or me or or any of the church leaders. And the prayer corner has been beautifully bedecked with leather sofas this morning, so you can go down there. And um, I would urge you to just listen to what Paul is saying and listen to what God is saying uh, through this scripture and if you are a Christian you may well be like me and not always feel that you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms and that you're no longer condemned and that doesn't make it any less true just because you don't feel it and probably if I was looking at them which I'm not my family would now be laughing um, because they know that I struggle with this okay they are laughing Um, I struggle with this more than most but so you know There's a guy, Jerry Bridges, who, who, uh, if you've read any of his books, absolutely brilliant, and he has a phrase, you should preach the gospel to yourself every day. And what he means is you should understand every day exactly what it is that you've been rescued from and exactly what it is that Jesus has done for you and exactly what the truth of this verse, therefore there is now no condemnation those who are in Christ Jesus and you know we all just need to understand more and more of that as we go on in our Christian lives I think okay so that was by way of if we go back a little bit what we were before we became Christians and now we're going to talk a little bit more and also what happened when we became a Christian and now we're going to talk a little bit more about how God did it and just a couple of things to say here um We may think that we became Christians because we had a good idea one day and somebody told us um, what it said in the Bible and we prayed a prayer in Sunday school or by our bed. And the point is that we need to remember that Paul says that we were spiritually dead. So unless God had actually done something, there's no way we could have responded to that message. And Paul puts it like this. It's by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, not by us deciding it would be a good idea, not by us um, trying to earn our salvation in some way by doing good things, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, the beginning of our church text, but it's all related. And Paul wants to emphasize that it's by grace God's riches freely given, that we are faith saved. And even the faith, even the faith that we have been given is a gift of God. And, and you know, we may have come to faith and become Christians in, in lots of different ways, but looking back on our lives, we can see that it was God who actually took the initiative. Perhaps he sent a friend to talk to us. Perhaps he gave us Christian parents who shared their faith. Perhaps we read something or we were somehow guided to go to a particular church or a toddler group or whatever. And whatever it was, I think we can all see that it was God who started it. It was his idea in our lives. And that means that we can be absolutely sure that he'll finish it. And, you know, we've got no idea really why he chose us other than it was because he loves us. And that's what the Bible says is a wonderful verse. It was a favourite of my mum's, in, in Deuteronomy. The Lord did not set his affection on you. He did not love you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples. This is Moses talking to the people of Israel now. For you were the fewest of all people. There were 70 of them that went up into Egypt um, uh, originally. But it was because the Lord loved you And I I still remember remember my mum preaching on this and saying, the Lord loved you, set his affection on you, because he loved you. In other words, there's no reason. (laughs) He decided to love us. And and that's just a a marvellous thing. And, you know, we can be absolutely sure if God decided to do it, he's going to do it properly. He's not going to be half-hearted about it. He's not going to make a mistake. And so what this shows us, is that when we became Christians, God did it perfectly. And we we might worry that we didn't quite pray the prayer right or whatever. Um, But when God comes to us and meets with us, he does it perfectly. And we can also know that he won't give up on us. He's going to keep on working in in us perfectly. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in a second. But there's that beautiful verse at the beginning of Philippians where which is one six, I think, sorry, not 16, being confident of this, that he, that's God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And, and, and how could it be otherwise? We may sometimes think that we'll never become the people that God wants us to be, but we will. God says so. Do we really think that God will give up on us? How could he? The other thing is, he won't let us give up on him either. And, you know, you might be here today and you might feel like you've been wandering away from God, that perhaps you're doing things that you know God's not pleased with. Perhaps you've been very far away from him. But, you know, if you've become a Christian at some time in your life, God will not give up on you. He will do whatever it takes to bring you back. He'll hold on to you. And, you know, if you have wandered away... It might be painful to come back, but just like the story of the prodigal son, God is waiting there, and he's waiting to run to you if you will turn and respond to him, and he won't give up on you. And the final thing, I think, yeah, is that... God is powerful to answer prayer. It was was God's idea to save us and make make us the people that that he wants us to be. So when we pray for our friends, when we pray for other people, we can be sure that we're praying in line with what God wants because it'll be God in the first place that's prompted us to pray that prayer. So we don't have to go to God and say, both you and I know that it would be great if so-and-so became a Christian, so if there's anything you can do to sort of help that a bit, that would be really nice. We don't have to pray that. We can pray confidently to God saying, God, we know that it's not your will that anyone should perish, as the Bible says, but that all should come to repentance. Please start working in my friend's heart. Please say them. And we can pray confidently. And you know, I I don't have all the answers as to why sometimes we don't seem to see some of those prayers being answered or why sometimes we've been praying that prayer for years. But I would just encourage you, God is faithful and God is powerful. And he can answer those prayers. So we're kind of running out of time, which was exactly what I was expecting. But we have now arrived at the church text. And all of this is in the context of of, of what God has done. Um, We are God's workmanship. So we've seen already that our salvation, our being rescued from all of those things, is God's initiative. And what Paul is saying here in addition is that our salvation was for a purpose, and that purpose was to do good works. That's why we we were created. We've seen already that he who began this in us will definitely complete it. And Paul said a few things in this verse. We were created in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means that we were created to be in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. And, you know, he chose us from the beginning of the world, So, uh, I, I read this quote which I quite liked, which was that however dark our pre Christian past may be, from God's point of view, we have actually always been in Christ. It just took a while for his call to come through. So, we were created to be in fellowship with him. And then we were created to do good works. Well, let's just pause here for half a second. What are the good works that we've been created to do? Well, A couple of things spring to mind, and the first one is one that that Simon pointed out a week or two ago. Uh, Later on in Acts, uh, from from where we've been looking, in Acts chapter 10, Peter's talking to the Roman centurion, um, Cornelius, and he says, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So we could say, and we'd be right, that the good works are Jesus' works themselves. And remember when Simon introduced Acts to us, He talked about Luke continuing in Acts what he had started to describe in his gospel, all that Jesus began to do and teach. So in another sense, these good works are the same works that we've been hearing about the apostles doing and will be hearing about the apostles doing in the chapters of Acts. They continue Jesus' work, and we're called to continue their work. And um, for a Baptist, that's what's meant by the apostolic succession. And once again we're reminded of that passage in John 15 where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches and where it says that without him we can do nothing. And so there's another metaphor there which is that the good works are the fruit, the fruit of our relationship with him. And in that sense too they are Jesus' work and not really ours at all. And what are we talking about here? I think we're talking about mission and maturity not surprisingly we're talking about mission fruit, people coming to know the Lord Jesus, and we're talking about maturity fruit, people growing in their knowledge of the Lord, and us all growing, uh, and the fruit of the Spirit that we know about, love, joy, peace, patience. The other great thing about this text is that um, God prepared these things in advance for us to do. It means that the things that he has for us to do are things that he especially specially prepared and always prepared. And that means that he's gone before us. As we launch into some new venture that we believe that God's calling us to do, he's been there before. Actually, he prepared it for us to do before creation. And these are things that we're called to do as well. They're things that we're shaped for. They were prepared for us. Well, We've come a long way in a short period of time. And I just want to finish by looking a little bit more at that passage in John 15. Where does these fruit come from? Where does this good work come from? What's God's work in that? And what's our work? Well, you might want to turn, turn to John chapter 15. It's on page 1083 in the Pew Bible. But there's just a few things to have a look at from this passage. The first thing is that we've been chosen to bear fruit. This is to my Father's glory there in verse 8, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to me by disciples. Well, we've, we've talked about that already. It also says that we will be pruned. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that will be even more fruitful we know that without pruning we don't really get a good crop from a fruit tree or a vine or a a fruit bush or whatever it might be and it's the same with us Uh, we can expect it we can expect God to do some things in our life to round off the rough edges to chop off some bits that aren't so good Um, it's not pleasant but it's necessary and the reward is the fruit that we're talking about here and then the final thing in this passage is that we must abide, or as the NIV says, we must remain in him. And this is the, I think, the the link to prayer week. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying we can have confidence in prayer. As we grow our relationship with God through prayer through bible study through fellowship through worship together then we can have more and more confidence that as we pray to God he will hear us and that the things that we will pray for will be the things that God wants to do and we will bear that fruit and that's a great promise for prayer week isn't it we can come to God with confidence as we seek him and we seek not our own glory, or our own advancement or the pet things that we might want to do but as we seek to do the things that God really wants to do the fruit that God wants to do in our life, those good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do then we can know that God will hear us and we can know that we will bear fruit I just want to leave you with one I think I said all of that one fruit There's some wonderful, two wonderful verses in this passage. Jesus says this, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. So the good works that we do, the fruit that we bear, that mission fruit of new lives coming to him, that maturity fruit of us growing in our relationship with God and showing more love and more grace, that will bring glory to God. And the other thing, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete or or in other translations my your joy may be full that's God's purpose in all of this not just his glory but also our joy and those two things completely linked together so the more glory God gets in what we do the more he is lifted up the more we praise him and worship him the more will be our own joy in our lives and surely that's an incentive to come to him now, wherever we are, whatever we've done. He loves us, he's calling us, he will make us the people that he created us to be so that he is glorified and he's worshipped as he should be and we become people who find their true joy in him. Amen.